I'm Sean Graham, and what's old as news this week is disability activism. In the mid-1960s, Beryl Potter was working at a bakery when she had an accident. And over the next six years, she endured unimaginable pain going through dozens of surgeries that ultimately resulted in multiple amputations and loss of eyesight. And from that experience, she became a disability activist, pushing political and social leaders to recognize challenges with accessibility, push to resolve those issues, and create both a social and physical environment that was more welcoming to disabled Canadians. And one of the primary ways in which Beryl Potter worked as an activist was to speak to children, both on television and in schools. She very much believed that by talking with children, she would be able to ensure that the next generation would be more aware of the challenges presented by inaccessible spaces and therefore paving the way for disability justice. And her story is the subject of a new book entitled Barrel, The Making of a Disability Activist by Dustin Gaylor, in which she gets into her life and her activism. She was a complicated woman who, as, as Dustin mentions in the book, was a generation older than a lot of her compatriots within the disability rights movement. And as a result, there were challenges associated with that, that she had this generational gap and different approaches from many of her peers. And it led her into this very unique path of activism that he profiles very well in the book. And this is a story that obviously is about Beryl Potter and her experience as an activist and her activism, but is also very relevant to contemporary discussions around accessibility and some of the challenges being faced across the country. And and we'll get into that with the historical headline of the week a little bit later. But before we get there, I had the chance to talk with Dustin Gaylor earlier about Beryl and the book and her legacy as we sit here in 2023. It's a wide-ranging discussion that I very much enjoyed, and I think you will as well. So let's get right into my chat with Dustin Gaylor. All right, and Dustin Gaylor joins me now. Dustin, how are you today? Very good. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure to have you here to talk about Barrel, the making of a disability activist. As I said in the intro, really a really interesting book that certainly does touch on a lot of contemporary issues here in 2023. But before we get to those, let's just start really at the beginning and say, who was Beryl Potter? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this book uh, tracks the life of of Beryl Potter. Beryl was born in Liverpool in the 1920s. Uh, She had very trouble beginning to her life. She lost multiple close family members and lived through some very desperate times during the Depression and Second World War. Liverpool was very hard hit by that. Uh, And trouble sort of followed her when she immigrated to Toronto in the 50s. Uh, She was like a working class mother. Her uh, husband likely had PTSD from his wartime experiences. So there was a lot of alcoholism and abuse in the home. Uh, She had debilitated migraines. Uh, That's where she was first introduced to opioids. And it was actually even hospitalized for a period of time for that. But her life was was completely transformed uh, when a series of events led to the amputation of multiple limbs and partial vision. 
Um, and her time in hospital left her with a serious opioid addiction and multiple suicide attempts. <laughs> Not to mention, obviously, the devastating effect this all had on her family life. And really, that's just the early part of her story, because following this ordeal, she went on to become one of the most recognizable disability activists in Canada. From the 70s to the 90s, Beryl's name would regularly flash across newspaper and television headlines, whether it was, you know, shutting down Young Street for a protest or marching on Parliament Hill. Uh, she was almost constantly in the news. So there's a certain generation of Canadians who would remember her from uh, this is this is why I like the cover of the book, which is just a bunch of microphones thrust in her face, because that's how most Canadians would remember her of that generation. But when she wasn't lobbying or protesting, she was she spent a lot of time in classrooms um, trying to educate children uh, about the realities of living with disability, trying to sensitize them. And I was one of them. I actually was one of the the kids she spoke to as a little boy when I remembered. I can tell you about that later, how I, I uh, remember meeting her. And, uh, you know, Beryl always said that children are future doctors and architects and policymakers. And so she felt that by imprinting positive representations of disability onto children, then they would carry those impressions into their adult lives. And for her, that's how you made change, this very long range uh, project. And that was really her main goal, especially at the end of her life. And, and obviously, that's a project that continues to this day. So you mentioned that she, in her early part of her life, depression, Second World War, when she has her her health issues that lead to the amputations, what era are we talking about? And so, so just what is a bit of the timeline and where is she based at, at that point? So what happened was she was actually she can be classified as an injured worker. She was working in a bakery and just a very sim- simple slip and fall. I was Hunt's Bakery in Toronto. So this is uh, 1965. She had been working at Kresge's before, a member of Kmart. <laughs> this is like the forerunner to that. So she was actually really part of the the, the female labor force at that time, um, a lot of front, front end retail. And then she ended up getting a job closer to home. Um, so it's mid 60s when she had her accident. And then there was about six long years of her being hospitalized. And she really didn't start getting involved in her activism until about the mid-70s because she had so many health problems at that point. So if we situate ourselves then in the 70s, in the mid-70s, there's a lot going on in the world and in Canada in the mid-1970s. You have... in, In terms of things that'll take up political bandwidth, certainly linguistic issues not only in Quebec, but across the country. The Indigenous rights movement is continuing to to push for its recognition and uh, advocating. You do have uh, continuing uh, feminist movements, uh, the burgeoning of the gay rights movement. So all these things are working and trying to get space within the public discourse. So what is the environment that Beryl and other disability activists are facing and simply trying to get public attention at a time where domestically, and I didn't mention anything internationally in the 1970s within that context, where there's just a lot of people advocating for the time and attention of policymakers and people in power. Well, the thing about disability activism in Canada is that 
the the way systems are structured sort of lends itself to more localized activism. So especially with healthcare systems, social services mainly being provincial and municipal uh, beasts, you can say. Yeah. Uh, and so a lot of the activism centers around those those things. So the important thing to remember about Beryl is that uh, she was born in the 1920s. So by the 1970s, and this is covered in the book, a lot of the disability activists at that time were coming of age, you know, from the 60s and 70s. You know, these are boomer children, really. And so Je Beryl is basically a generation older. I, I discuss in the book how they're at this nexus in disability history, we have a transition from a very old style charitable approach to funding disability advocacy and other, you know, trying to, you know, lobby government officials and stuff. This was mainly nonprofit charitable organizations, often non-disabled people. And when Beryl's just starting coming onto the stage is when consumer activists, people with disabilities, these these younger energize, people energized from other social movements are starting to, to make their claims uh, for disability rights. But Beryl is this, this is partly why I was so fascinated by her because I discovered her in the course of my graduate research, which became my first book, Working Towards Equity and the History of the Disability Rights Movement. And Beryl's name just kept sort of popping up here and there, but she was not really connected to any social movement and yet she was very important in in other areas so you know as a historian i was just like who is like i have to figure out who this woman is like where does she stand you know what role did she play and it was the more i dug into her story that's when i realized well actually she just sort of was this lone figure who again generation older than other people she could be at the front of a protest or she could be in a classroom she was not uh, she preferred to start and lead her own groups rather than joining others. And so she has, this is this portrait of hers intended to be a very uh, wide ranging, like full portrait of a person who was somewhat plugged into social movements and, and yet also not. So the disability rights movement as it existed at that time was sort of this creature existing in different provinces and not yet fully connected. And, and she was just sort of doing her own thing with promoting disability awareness. And what are the things that disability activists are pushing for, right? Because you, you have today, ramps are commonplace with all new builds. You can see them everywhere. Even I, I've been struck over the past few years. I remember as an undergrad taking the bus up to campus in North Bay, all the buses had stairs that you had to go up to get on the bus. And here, now I live in Ottawa, all of the buses are wheelchair accessible that we have, right? And that's, you know, 15 or 20 years, the difference between those two things. So it, it feels like there is, in the 21st century, accessibility by no means is a perfect, and we'll talk about that, but it seems like there are steps that are being taken. So if you could take us back to 1975, what are some of the things that disability activists are really pushing for at this point in the movement? Yeah, and actually that's, so that's where, um, with Beryl's story, you could look at many of the topics of conversation at that time, accessibility, affordable housing, transit, discrimination, poverty. Like, does any of this sound familiar? Like, yeah. these are all the yeah. same topics. And it's, it's, I think it's probably very frustrating for many disability activists because, you know, they've been fighting for the same thing. And, and many of it is really just basic stuff, what everyone wants, a home and a job 
and a friend in a, in a, in a very basic sense, a safe and accessible place to call home, um, an occupation paid for those who wanted the ability to get around social and recreational opportunities, um, and for people to treat them with respect. Well, that shouldn't be so hard, but it is hard because for most of our history, we have literally constructed physical and social spaces in a way that excludes people with disabilities. You know, like at the, at the same time they were building residential schools to further colonialize indigenous populations, they were building residential hospitals to, to physically contain people with disabilities. Like this is part of our history. Uh, and that's partly why I wrote this book because I, I think that Canadians don't have uh, a great understanding of how people with disabilities have shaped our history and our culture. I mean, you mentioned our built environment. This comes out of disability activism, the fact that our sidewalks are shaped a certain way and our, you know, our transit systems are shaped a certain way. But of course, there are lingering problems. One thing Beryl thought a lot in the, in the 70s when it was first introduced was paratransit. So in Toronto, that's uh, wheel trans, where I'm from in Hamilton, it's called darts. It's called different things, but they're specialized tra transit services. But ever since the beginning, when they were first introduced, there have been problems with late and missed pickups, which make it impossible for people to hold a job, keep appointments, just, you know, generally participate in the community. That has been just a, a consistent problem from, from day one. And, you know, you could pick up a paper today and it would probably say many of the same complaints as it did in Beryl's day. So it, it does, it does get frustrating. And even as a historian, way back in my graduate research, I had to consider like, how do I write the history of something that hasn't changed very much? Like I, I was focusing on uh, disability, uh, like poverty in the disability community, unemployment, which is often like 50% quoted at around 50%, which is almost double what it was in the Great Depression for general unemployment, just to put that in perspective. Yeah. And so that eventually led me to biography, so at least I could track the evolution of one woman's life and how that intersected with disability rights, because it's a slow pace. It, it, nothing happens quickly, and it's two steps forward, one step back. It's interesting that you mentioned the social versus physical form of discrimination, the built spaces, but then also the social discrimination. And, and when you're looking at the movement and Beryl's life and what she's advocating for, is it all one and the same? Does the, the change in a physical environment lead to or contribute to changes in social perceptions? Or are they different elements that the movement is addressing in multitudes of ways in order to, in, in whatever way they can, get at the entirety of the discrimination faced by individuals with disabilities? Yeah. So, so again, like I'm not a disability activist right. and I don't represent the disability rights movement. And if, if, uh, listeners are, are, are interested, you can look up like Council of Canadians with Disabilities, um, the AODA Alliance. Like there's, there's organizations of people with disabilities, disability rights activists, and we should be looking and listening to what their priorities are. Actually, could you repeat the question? Cause I, yeah. <laughs> I just no, went on that preface. No, right? so it's, yeah, no, it, it, that, that's definitely fair, but. In in the seventies, in their advocacy, like when Barrow's going to speak to people, is there something that for, for them as they're speaking that physical environment leads to social change, or does social change lead to physical ch environment change? And how do they navigate those two things that are obviously connected, 
but also potentially require different forms of advocacy. Yeah, and this is this was actually the biggest divergence that I document in the book between Beryl and the modern disability rights movement at that time. So a lot of disability rights activists would be pushing for for actual rights enshrined in legislation that leads to the requirement of mandatory, you know, curb cuts and accessibility and these sorts of things. And uh, Beryl was uh, certainly interested in that, and she was definitely at the forefront of a lot of things. But she was also, over time, convinced that cultural change needed to come first. She'd experienced a lot of broken promises. This is actually a theme in disability policy and and legislation, which is well-intentioned but ultimately weak legislation. Uh, She fought that in the 80s with the introduction of the Federal Employment Equity Bill, where she, um, there's a funny story I can tell you later if you remind me, (laughs) um, where she confronted Prime Minister Mulroney. But, uh, you know, she, she felt, that's why she spent so much time trying to educate children, because at some point she felt, well, these attitudes are just too entrenched, that people with disabilities aren't as valuable as everyone else, that the services they rely upon should receive less funding than other services. She just grew so frustrated with dealing with this current generation that she, that's why she focused on children and spending all of her time trying to just nurture this empathy instead of fear and ignorance that populates uh, so many people's minds. Now, one of the things that regularly comes up when people are talking about accessibility and some resistance perhaps to implementing things for for accessibility purposes, it often comes to money and businesses saying, well, to build this or to implement this, it's going to cost too much money. We can't afford it. And then governments saying, well, it should be up to private businesses to do so. Like that's one of the main roadblocks. And for Beryl in her life and her advocacy, how did financial pressures operate for her in her advocacy? And how did she kind of navigate money as a point of resistance to change? That's so interesting because another interviewer had that same question. And it's something I hadn't considered as much in the book. But uh, but to answer your question, so Beryl was technically an injured worker. So she would have received um, uh, a pension from the Workers' Compensation Board, now the WSIB. So her experience of her disability, and this is actually a larger story of disability, is that your experience of disability, especially in this country, is dictated by when you acquired your disability, where you acquired it, what province you were living in, if you were at work or if you were in a car, and you could have the exact same disability and your experience can be very different. I know that just based on my own family experience. So for Beryl, uh, as an injured worker, she would collect a pension, the uh, Workers' Compensation Board would pay for all sorts of assistive devices, you know, like she'd have a track running from her bedroom to her bathroom, like expensive things like uh, that she required to do her advocacy. Um, I mean, it was limited. It was still below poverty rates. And and she had this brilliant strategy. Um, she had a very close relationship with her son, Dennis, who lived with intellectual disabilities and, and was also her sort of caregiver in a way. And so she, in everything that she did, she she would always try to get a salary for her son as an attendant. 
in order to maximize her payback from whatever she was doing because she was living at poverty level wages. Uh, every single, uh, I shouldn't say every single, but certainly every large organization that she started and led like action awareness was all funded by grants that she would have had to go out and find and get and then find staffing. And, you know, she, she was basically working three times as hard as anyone else just to fund her own advocacy. And even that wasn't enough. And she needed her son to be her full-time assistant. So um, the work of doing advocacy is, is, is very difficult, especially when, uh, when your means are stretched. Uh, what other roadblocks were put in the way of her other disability advocates when they are out and pushing for accessibility or, or just in general, they're advocating for their rights? I think financial to me is the one that immediately struck me that right, people always say like money and, and, you know, this sort of the saying goes, the answer to all life's questions is money. So, you know, ha- what other sort of roadblocks are are up in the way that disability advocates and, and Beryl in particular are trying to push through in their advocacy? Yeah, well, actually, um, there's one disability activist who commented when the book came out who mentioned uh, that, uh, Pat Danforth is her name, out in uh, Victoria, that people don't choose to become uh, activists or advocates. They're often forced to. Like, this mm-hmm. isn't a career choice. Right. And so <laughs> most people with disabilities, Beryl included, um, we're experiencing the discrimination and prejudice that they experience every single day when they try to go about their lives. And so you're forced to advocate for yourself. You're forced to think about accessibility when no one else does. And so that's partly why I wrote this story is because I'm hoping to create more of an appetite for stories like this, because, you know, for most Canadians, I think their, their name recognition of important disabled Canadians sort of begins and ends with Terry Fox or right. Rick Hansen, maybe Michael J. Fox, nothing against those people, but you know, there's a lot of other uh, people like Beryl and, and others who, you know, have forced to advocate for themselves every day. And in the course of doing so have changed the way our culture and social and physical spaces are, are constructed. So in Beryl's case, you know, when she came out of the hospital, one of the first things she saw was there was a lack of any kind of social interaction or recreational opportunities because uh, Scarborough, where she was uh, living at the time, was so inaccessible. The only place they could meet was the local mall. And mm-hmm. so they would meet at a mall. Later, they would organize meeting at gymnasiums. Like They, they just had to do all them, these things on a shoestring budget themselves. No one was helping them or showing them what to do. Now you mentioned earlier that... I'll- in the 1970s, as Beryl is starting this journey of advocacy, that there isn't really a lot of national presence, that people are dealing with issues in their local community, given the jurisdictional issues that we have in this country. So could you just give us a sense of what is the responsibility of a municipal government, a provincial government, and the federal government as it relates to disability and accessibility uh, in terms of services and how does that impact advocacy in terms of just knowing who to talk to when it comes to uh, trying to push for accessibility services? That's a great question. I don't know the answer to that. I'm not a policy expert. <laughs> I know I seem like one, uh, but no, it's it's true. I mean, I did my, my um, 
my postdoc at a, at a think tank where that that's where uh, that's those are the questions they grappled with. Right. How do we deal with the silo effect? Because I mentioned workers' compensation board earlier. You know, that grew up and evolved and had its own little history. And then there's other systems that grew up and evolved and have, you know, programs, old age security. And, you know, all of these federal, provincial, municipal programs have their own histories. And for some reason, they they have these bureaucracies that don't communicate with each other. I've actually just finished another book that deals with this problem. Um, when when systems and agencies don't talk to each other, there's information gaps, there's uh, collaboration gaps, there's all sorts of things for people who are vulnerable and who rely on these things to fall through. And it's it's almost the way our country is structured needs right. to be restructured to be more collaborative and and perhaps centralized. But I don't I'm not advocating for that. I don't I'm not a disability activist. Right. You'd have to again. I would see what disability activists are saying about uh, the ways we need to um, address those gaps. Because, the, you know, the legacy of disability policies is that they haven't been listened to. They've been, these have been policies and bills that have been devised by able-bodied people and, and thrust upon uh, people with disabilities. So by listening to them, we will be able to craft um, better policy with probably fewer mistakes and less, less costly errors. Yeah. And if you look to say, so I live in Ottawa, right? And you have a place where there's a provincial courthouse that's right next to City Hall that is across the street from a National Capital Commission park. And then there's like a bank right there. So there you have like National Capital Commission, which is kind of federal, a federally regulated industry, provincial, municipal, all together. And like, who, like so this very, it is a very complicated web of bureaucracy to try to navigate for sure. And yeah, who's responsible for what is, isn't always clear. Uh, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Lots uh, of opportunities to pass the buck. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so you, you mentioned that you had a personal experience as a kid, a uh, hearing her speak. Uh, what was that experience like for you? And what, what do you remember about it? What really sticks with you from having heard her? Yeah, so I totally forgot about her. I have the world's worst memory, which is ironic as a historian. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's why everything has to be written down. Right. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, I, I rediscovered her in the course of my graduate research, uh, which I had mentioned is sort of the history of the disability rights movement. And I had totally forgotten about her until one day in the archives, I turned over this picture of her and Mr. Grizzly, the aware bear. Beryl was very inspired by uh, children uh, television educators like Mr. Rogers and I'm not sure if Mr. Dressup was uh, on at that point, but definitely Mr. Rogers. And so Mr. Grizzly, Grizzly was like her answer to Mr. Dressup and Mr. Rogers. So it was a full life-size animatronic bear with amputated limbs who used a wheelchair and spoke all of it operated by her son, Dennis off in a corner somewhere. And so she would use these, Mr. Grizzly is like a foil sort of like a, a way to interact with children. And then, you know, she would step in and, and interact with them. So she would bring that Mr. Grizzly to all of her talks. And so when I saw her and the bear, I was like, Oh my gosh, like it just, it, the memory came back in a flash right. of the meeting her. It was so amazing because yeah, like where I grew up, it was sort of rural um, outside of Hamilton. You didn't really see that many people with wheelchairs out and about, um, certainly not like coming and speaking and, you know, putting on a presentation. And, and she also looked like my grandmother. So I was like, oh, my gosh, I have an instant connection to this person. But 
yeah, she definitely she she definitely left an impression, and that's the sort of message she was bringing is to just inspire empathy instead of fear and ignorance because we had to experience that with my own family um, when my sister sustained a, a brain injury and so you know having that positive impression impression of disability we could try to deal with that in a different way or, or for her talking to kids you, you mentioned that it's imp- it was important to her and yeah that is the next generation but also kids not that adults can't be mean but kids can be mean too right and and not always uh, the most accepting or, or sometimes even well-intentioned uh, efforts to reach kids are met with levels of uh, resistance or confusion or or sometimes even a kid will just ask a question that could come across as potentially mean, but they don't mean it like that. Like, how did she kind of navigate those spaces? Uh, because I would think that really for anybody who who ever works with kids, certain level of thick skinness, but also understanding kids where they are and and how to communicate with them. Yeah, I love that. Instead of Bill Cosby's kids say that aren't those things, it's kids are so mean. Because <laughs> it can be, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, actually, I mean, I document that in the book as well. Like when she first um, had her first amputation, her first le- uh, leg was amputated. She was still ambulatory. And so uh, she, the first time that she ventured out to go was to go to church and she was waiting at the bus stop and a little boy pointed at you know looked under her coat and he's like hey lady where's your other leg and she was just so she crumbled inside and just started you know crying and then she was too embarrassed and she went home that person couldn't be more different from this it she almost became like a sort of television character by that time she had had her own television show on community access television called Ability Forum. She had already, you know, spoke to tens of thousands of kids and done many presentations. So she honed this, this sort of persona. And so she's sort of like, I don't know, like a Mrs. Doubtfire <laughs> with fewer limbs or something. <laughs> yeah, she because she's got the pearls and the hair and she's Liverpool. So she's got the English accent. And uh, one documentarian of hers just described her as having this old world English charm that a lot of Canadians kind of warm to. Mm-hmm. And so she, she knew how to turn that on to do her educating. And then she had this ability to turn it off and become this like firebrand activist who's screaming down cameras. And it was just that navigating, nav- navigating that razor's edge and knowing when to deploy it for different uh, reasons, which is I think what made her such a go-to person. One of the things that often happens when people are writing about or talking about advocates is they'll use terms like brave or inspirational. And there's almost like this like fetishization of the individuals. And, you know, I, I saw an interview this summer with uh, a woman who's, who's a mother who has an Instagram account that kind of went viral. Uh, she's a wheelchair user and people use those terms. And I, the interview in, in the interview, she said, no, I'm just a woman raising my kids. That's, so how do you, as the historian, try to go about writing a biography of Beryl Potter without falling into those same traps of, of, of not necessarily meeting the person on their terms, but meeting them, I guess, on your terms and using that type of language that perhaps, and, and I don't know this, but perhaps somebody like Beryl and other advocates don't like being viewed in 
with that that type of terminology. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, no offense to anyone, like all the academic like listeners, but I had to unlearn a lot of academic writing habits. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, it helped in a sense that I I like I am need to. This is why I'm not very good at social media. I have to be very careful about and you know what I put out there and make sure it's very well crafted and researched and cited and and that's all great. Um, and you do need to do your your research, but you can't get in the way of someone's story. And that's something I had to learn as a biographer. And so I'd already sort of come to biography after I started my own uh, private uh, history practice, my historian, where I do corporate history projects and biographies, family history. So I'd started to learn that process of just committing to the story. And so I did that with, with Beryl as well, not quite knowing what I would get into. Like, was this going to be one of those stories where it's sort of like the inspirational fluff triumph over the odds, you know, right. these sorts of stories where it often, it has a very predictable arc. Uh, I didn't know what her story was going to be like. And then it turned out her, her family was just fabulously open about sharing her entire story warts and all. And then I thought, well, you know, this does have the makings of something that can be important as a contribution to literature, which is again, an academic standard. Um, I just didn't want to throw a book out there. And like, this is a very, she she was a very um, inspirational person in terms of what she went through, but she was also like kind of a badass. I don't know if I can say that on here, but like, you know, she was very provocative. She had a very difficult personality. She burned bridges. She was ambitious um, to a fault. Sometimes she, let her activism take over her entire life so that it pushed her family out and her, her grandkids felt like they didn't have enough access to her. Like, you know, all of this show to show that this is not just one of your normal tales of just right. dis- triumph over disability, et cetera, et cetera. Um, this is a full portrait of someone. And I think that we need more stories like that. I think that's how you make change is just by having a full portrait of someone rather than rehashing the old stereotypes because that's how stereotypes get made and reinforced. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned that she was a bit of a firebrand at times. You'd mentioned earlier that there was a a run-in with Brian Mulrooney. So could you, yeah, could you tell that story of of her interaction with the, the former prime minister? Yeah, the time she like maybe assaulted the prime minister. <laughs> that seems to be the story people are interested in. Yeah, so this was um, in 1988, the uh, conservatives have introduced a bill, a federal employment equi- equity bill. And according to Judy Rebick, a very famous uh, feminist who also wrote the foreword to this book, she believes that this was the first time that the disability rights movement led across social movement in Canada, which is a pretty big accomplishment at that time. Uh, because like I said earlier, and like with most dis- disability legislation, uh, the bill was well-intentioned, but ultimately weak. There was, it's just voluntary measures with no mandatory enforcement mechanisms or anything like that. And so Beryl and others were unhappy about that. And so they went to Ottawa to try to secure uh, a meeting with the prime minister, but they couldn't get one. So they got a tip off that Prime Minister Mulroney uh, used a specific hallway to get from the House of Commons to a cabinet meeting room. And so if you intercepted him in that hallway, maybe you could get like a little meeting with him. Apparently this happens all the time. 
Judy and, and Beryl are sitting in this hallway and he comes striding up thinking maybe it's like a photo op because I don't know. Uh, but as soon as he gets close enough, he sees, oh, uh, he knows Beryl and Judy are not happy with the bill. And, you know, he, he does get close enough to be congenial. But as he does so, Beryl, with her only one arm, reaches up and grabs him and starts screaming, you know, you didn't listen to us. You promised you'd, you know, listen to the disability community's demands. What's wrong with you? You know, you promised us. <laughs> and everyone's shocked. Like, you can't just grab the prime minister. Um, but she and she wouldn't let go. It wasn't just a little grab. And so, you know, eventually they got a meeting with the top policy person. Um, and, you know, Judy's saying, okay, Beryl, you should let go of the prime minister now. <laughs> so it just went, went to show like she just was so unafraid of right. consequences. She was like totally committed to the cause. Like Judy even said, if she could have thrown herself on the ground, she would have done that. Um, she was so committed to what she was doing. As we're here in 2023, there was in the summer, a bill C-22 got royal assent this past June. Then, I don't know if this is fits the definition of irony perfectly, but in the fall, we've seen a number of stories from Air Canada, mostly Air Canada, the ones I've read, uh, damaging wheelchairs, uh, not providing uh, adequate services to wheelchair users on flights. And that is a, a business that falls under federal jurisdiction in this country. I do know that. So they would be subject to Bill C-22. So you, we have all this currently going on. So within this environment, uh, Dustin, what would you say is Beryl's legacy? And how does her advocacy help inform us or contextualize some of the current discussions that are going on because as you mentioned earlier a lot of the issues that she's talking about when she's starting her advocacy in the mid-1970s still exist today so how can we use her life and and her story to help contextualize and understand some of what we're reading about today yeah the, so the big the most important message of her story is that those issues are going to continue to exist unless you continue to fight against it it's she was inspired a lot by Terry Fox, who talked about carrying on the torch. And she felt that she was carrying on his torch because a lot of her ascent into activism was at the time when he did his run and it just had a big impact on her. Um, so she she honestly felt like you needed to continue the torch. And she knew that because at the end of her life, a lot of her, um, her lifetime of activism was being undone by policies uh, of the Mike Harris uh, provincial conservative government. Uh, There's a lot of cost cutting and it, disability organizations suffered the most. So she was seeing a lot of that. You know, you mentioned Bill C-22, the Canada Disability Benefit. Poverty and unemployment, that is just another one of those very long-standing issues. You mentioned airlines, you know, accessible transportation, another one of the long-standing issues. These are, these are not new things. They shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. Mm -hmm. um, and Beryl shouldn't, if she were to appear like in my living room right now, she shouldn't be able to pick up the newspaper and recognize the, the, the things that she was reading in her time. And actually, one story from her book that stands out as an example of why we need to continue the fight is the time when she was awarded the Order of Canada. So this is obviously 
our country's highest civilian honor. Um, it recognizes a lifetime of achievement. And so for her, it was actually recognizing her lifetime of trying to make this country a better country for disabled Canadians in all ways. Right. So the story begins sort of in a in a funny way with uh, country music star Stomp and Tom Connors. I don't know if you know who that was. Yeah. So the great country. So he image with the cowboy hat and the cowboy boots. So they had on a, on a Sudbury there. Saturday night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. So you imagine someone like that strolling into this um, award ceremony for the order of Canada, where it's all tuxedos and champagne flutes and, and he's got his cowboy hat and everything on. So he was awarded the Order of Canada at the same time as Beryl. And he kind of goes strolling up to her and asks her, you know, how, do you give any rides on that thing? And she's like, yeah, sure. Just, you know, have a seat. And he thought she'd go a couple of feet, but she like kicks it into high gear, like everything else in her life. <laughs> and they start doing like laps around the, the party and they kind of you know, everyone let their hair down. They had like a, a nice party after that. But uh, that's where Mr. Connor's story ends because the the reception continued next door at Ed's warehouse. And this was for all of the people who attended um, to have a nice dinner reception. Ed Mervish had set up this steakhouse because there weren't many restaurants uh, available in the area at that time. In the late, in the, I guess it was the late 90s, it's still. And uh, as she makes her way to the entrance, she sees a couple steps and she sees this before. Okay, there's no ramp, but, you know, obviously someone's going to go and let me in through the back door, which she hates and she'd complain later. But as time ticks by, she realizes, oh, no one's coming to get me, I guess. And oh, there's two flights of stairs to get in once you get past those couple stairs. No one has thought about accessibility, about accommodation. They just haven't, it's not in their brain yet to right. think, to think. And, and the, the terrible irony of that is the fact that she was being honored for this lifetime of work. So, right. you know, she, it, they offer to carry her up some steps, but she doesn't want the indignity of that because she's now an order of Canada recipient, right? Yeah. She's supposed to be honored. Right. And so she has her son, Dennis, get the car. And as she's being loaded up, you know, a limousine pulls up behind and outsteps Governor General Romeo LeBlanc, who sees her leaving early and questions why she's leaving. And she told them later, you know, you people just don't think about disability. You don't think about accessibility. You need to think. And and that's that's true of her message. That's true of what underpins most disability rights activism today is that people don't think about disability until it affects them directly. And that oversight has left huge gaps in our systems. Uh, we live in a very death and disability avoiding culture and, and that ignorance has allowed these gaps to persist, which is why we need to speak with uh, and understand and listen and evolve people with disabilities and the policies that affect them. Yeah, absolutely. And and certainly understanding some of the history, which is where the book comes in. So again, it's Barrel, The Making of a Disability Activist. Dustin, if people want to pick up a copy of the book, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, so you can go to btlbooks.com or dustingaylor.com, G-A-L-E-R. All right. And we will link to those down in the show notes, as well as to a couple of the organizations that Dustin mentioned during the uh, discussion. So uh, again, Beryl, the making of a disability activist, Dustin Gaylor, thank you so much for joining me today. Cool. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. So there you have it. My chat with Dustin Gaylor, and I thank him for his time. Once again, Beryl, the making of a disability activist. And with that, 
Let's get right to today's historical headline of the week, which today comes from CBC News. Air Canada makes changes after passengers with disabilities share dehumanizing experiences from November the 9th, 2020. Three just a couple of weeks ago, as I mentioned on the show throughout the fall, there have been a series of stories written about individuals having their wheelchairs damaged or in one case forgotten by Air Canada. Another case was an individual who was forced to drag themselves off the plane. So a series of dehumanizing and in the article in the title dehumanizing is in quotes experiences by people using air canada and air canada ceo michael rizzo was in ottawa to speak with the federal transport minister pablo rodriguez to discuss the issue of course air travel does fall under federal jurisdiction in canada so questions related to things like damaged wheelchairs, forgetting wheelchairs, accessibility onto airplanes. It does fall to the federal government to oversee that, to regulate that, as opposed to the provincial or municipal governments, as we spoke about briefly there on our chat with Dustin. So it's a story that has felt to me as it's come out increasingly through the fall that it just took one person to have their story profiled and Others with similar experiences then came out and said, oh, yeah, that happened to me or I had a similar thing happen to me. So when the first one happened, there was a story about it. The first one that I saw was about Stephanie Cadieu, who's Canada's chief accessibility officer. There was a story about her after Air Canada forgot her wheelchair on a flight between I believe it was Toronto and Vancouver. And subsequent to that, there have been a lot of stories of other individuals, other wheelchair users who have had similar experiences and just a general lack of accessibility with Air Canada in particular. But I I would suggest that it's a industry-wide issue for the airlines. And as Dustin mentioned, that's not the only place where these issues, these questions are coming up. So it's an ongoing story. And as he mentioned, a lot of the same issues, a lot of the same questions were raised in the 1970s. And here we are in 2023, hearing about similar experiences. So as I said in the discussion, I'm going to link down below to some of the organizations that Dustin mentioned. If you want to read more about the issues at play here with a lot of the attention right now in this country being on Air Canada. So today's historical headline of the week, Air Canada makes changes after passengers with disabilities share dehumanizing experiences from November the 9th, 2023. That's reported by Rihanna Shemunk and Michelle Husob. And with that, I will say thank you so much for listening, everybody. If you have not yet, please do subscribe wherever you get the show. Likes, rates, comments, all that good stuff helps other people find us and keeps us growing. As always, head on over to activehistory.ca. All of our past episodes are available under the podcast tab as we look to turn the calendar into December, the year in review 100 years later. Myself and Aaron Boys, we are planning to be back later in the month, so keep an eye out for that. And of course, all the other great written material that we have over on the website. If you want to let me know what you want to hear on the show, what's oldest news at gmail.com. So thanks again for listening, everybody. We'll be back with you again real soon for more 
What's all this next?